Freakers, and welcome to the scarcely to be believed 50th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. My God. I am Mike here, and I'm here with my co quinquagenarian conspirator, <laughs> John Whitten. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Mike. That's a lot of episodes. It is. I don't know if I have a funny or clever thing to say about it, but it's just it's just an awful lot of episodes, I reckon. And thank heavens we have a reason to make a congratulatory cup of tea because mm. we have had no opportunity to earn any kind of tea break since the last time we were <laughs> talking to each other. This, this is unfortunately true. Got it. It feels like only yesterday when we were recording last month's episode in large part... Because, <laughs> because it was only yesterday. It was only yesterday. So yeah, the, the, the follow-up section here yeah. might be a little light on the ground. If you blinked, you might have just missed it. <laughs> There is a little, because I have got another mistake to confess to, but we'll come to that. Before we go to a follow-up, I think, given that it's our 50th episode, we do need to have a little bit of a retrospective. What are some of your highlights of the last 49 episodes? I mean... There's an awful lot of jams that are now just on my regular playlist. That is true. There's my favourite subgenre of face palms, which is uh, Mike stays at school. <laughs> you know, because you, you exhibit a particular kind of mischievousness. It's not that you were a poor student, as far as I can tell. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Just a sort of baffling one. I mean, who could have predicted that I would end up doing a baffling podcast as a result? <laughs> Honestly, I think if you could if you could get to the point where you could explain what a podcast was to your teachers all those years ago, no one would be surprised. No. They would think to themselves, oh, good. I'm glad that you found that. What are you hanging around here wasting time for? <laughs> yes. And I do have to credit you, looking back over our podcast history, mm. I do have to credit you now with never being able to watch a stage production in the same way I could before. <laughs> now, now, how is that the case? I will always have a half an ear open for a quote of some other song coming from the pit band. <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, and I guarantee you, if you don't hear one, then you missed it. I'll be watching the interactions very closely of the uh, actors on stage or the, the musicians on stage, <laughs> looking for that moment when one of them opens up a box and there's a condom in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it may be, it may be, if you're there in premiere week or if you're there in the first month of shows, that, that it won't be occurring. But anything, <laughs> anywhere that you see that has been running for more than a month, yes. I guarantee... You know Warhorse? Yes. Right, so a, a, a source who will remain anonymous <laughs> for the sake of their own career toured with Warhorse for more than a year. Yes. And, it, you know, this was the touring company, not the, not the national company, so they went all over the world with these things. And they needed something to keep them interesting. Yes. And so there were many games and various. <laughs> one was seeing... With puppets, I mean... Exactly. Wow. So, so one, one game was during a very, very quiet scene. There was an informal competition. Yes. To see which of the chorus, who were frozen in place and facing away from the audience could sing Kylie Minogue the loudest without getting into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and it could be any Kylie Minogue song you like. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there was another where half of the chorus was kind of frozen looking upstage and half the chorus was frozen yes. looking downstage. So kind of they're facing each other really, really close. Yes. Kind of in pairs. Yes. And there was a genuine competition to see who could, to the furthest extent, undress their partner. <laughs> and of course... <laughs> You had to make sure you froze in such a way that your hands were invisible to the audience. <laughs> and if you were the one being undressed, you absolutely had to keep a straight face because you were meant to be frozen. Yes. <laughs> but could maybe try to angle yourself away because you were about to have to sprint across the stage. And if your trousers fell down, that would be no good at all. Oh, so, wow. 
<laughs> the joys are real, and I, I welcome anyone to to do some watching. And if you see anything, please do let us know. Well, I mean, you know, I have my eyes peeled now. I'm so very glad to hear it. <laughs> okay, my follow-up. If you will remember, though, I am trying to forget, last month I incorrectly identified Kelly Clarkson or <laughs> Billy Osborne or basically... <laughs> I made a big story out of the fact that a wonderful banjoist yes. played some wonderful banjo music. Quite unsurprisingly. Yes. <laughs> Something of a foot in mouth. In addition. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the glissatar? Hmm. And we both agreed, very cool instrument, hugely missed trick on the name. Yes. Why would you relate it to a guitar? Yes. You know, fretless saxophone. We, we had all sorts of clever ideas. Well, glissophone was the one we thought. Glissophone. Absolutely. Wondered at the simple-mindedness of the people who had invented an entire instrument from whole cloth <laughs> and how it could be that we were quite so much cleverer than them. Well, of course. <laughs> now, as is so often the case when I wonder <laughs> how it is that I'm quite so much cleverer, we're not, Mike. We're, we're just uh, shallow, narrow-minded and yes. very, very England-centric. There is a Hungarian instrument, the Taragato. Oh, right. Which is a single reed instrument with a conical wooden body. And it is this, ah. which the glissatar is based on. So it is, it's a glissing terragato, not anything else. Oh, right. Not a guitar, not... not any, now... Well, I mean, yeah, but that's a bit like saying it's called a glissatar because it glissandos and it reminds you of the film Avatar. <laughs> I mean... Wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, if you're going to put tar on the end of any musical instrument, I mean, really, what kind of dots are you expecting people to join? So what I'm hearing from you, and I just just want to want to make sure that I've got you right here. It'll be like a, a, a glissassoon. And actually, it's not because it looks like a bassoon. It's because it was inspired by Vidal Sassoon. Or <laughs> because <laughs> well, it's coming soon. Yes. And you just wanted to... Yeah. I, I, I hear you. Yeah, okay. I do. But just to check, you're saying that it is as fair <laughs> to relate this instrument to a very similar single reed Hungarian woodwind instrument as it is to relate it to James Cameron's well-constructed but artistically unfulfilling masterpiece, <laughs> Avatar, with kind of blue dogs in it. An eroticised blues clues is sort of what I got from, from Avatar. Well, they're both similarly futuristic. <laughs> they are. I w actually, a glissatar would have fit very well in Avatar. You're right, it would. So there is a logic there. Mm. And within Hungary, one has to assume that it's rather more apparent. But does gliss mean the same thing in Hungarian? <laughs> there is actually on the website a lovely, beautifully formatted definition of the Italian glissando. So it is multilinguistic. Right, it's just right. just that none of the languages are English. But mind you, none of the languages are English for any of our instruments. Guitar isn't English. That's, that's Italian again. We, we took everything. From, is there any instrument that we don't use the Italian name for? Coronglé? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Occasionally, we'll make it as close to home as France. I mean, saxophone, kind of. Oh, I've got one. Oh, go on then. Bagpipes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, which is only in the extremely recent past that I had to kind of tell someone else what this instrument was called. And they looked at me like I was a raving lunatic. And I said, what? And they're like, you really just call it bagpipes? 
Because to me, it was just a word. Yep. Well, it's better than a sack butt. Sack butt. <laughs> but it's, it's the literalism. It's that you see a bag and you see some pipes and you think, well, have I got, have I got a nomica for this? <laughs> Hold my beer. I wonder how the same person would have described some other things. <laughs> oh, yes. A, a stringy box. <laughs> In the footsteps of Benjamin Britten, we need to do the Simple-Minded Fool's Guide to the Orchestra. <laughs> and, you know, you've got Chester drawers with strings, yes. which is the double bass. Yeah, yeah. Um, bowl with skin on the top. Bad soup <laughs> bowl, which is kind of timpanese. Blow tuby thing. Well, there's an awful <laughs> lot of blow tuby things. I think you'd have to. I suppose so, yeah. Sparkle tube, which I guess would be flute. <laughs> Miserable tube, which is bassoon. Slidey fart. <laughs> That's the bass from Bone for you. <laughs> Pipe wool or tube wool. Yes, I mean, that has to be an organ, surely. Absolutely, it is. <laughs> you see, it would be so much easier, wouldn't it? it? It would. It would, rather than us having this kind of mixture of romance languages that we've just decided to adopt into our own. You kind of exploding head pump. Exploding head pump. I don't know. that. What's that one? Well, I mean, if you didn't know that an oboist were blowing into the thing, it looks mm. like the thing's blowing into them. <laughs> it does a bit. <laughs> I've never thought of an oboe as a head pump. You're right. It does look like you've put it in your mouth and you're resisting as hard as possible <laughs> a really intense flow of air from the oboe into the mouth. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, you've, got, you've got the pipe tangle family, <laughs> within which you've got kind of euphonium and tuba. Oh, and, yes, I suppose. And French horn. And French yeah. horn, absolutely. Well, what would you call a keyboard, a piano keyboard or something? Bashable barcode. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we've talked in the past, John, about the fact that I'm quite a big podcast fan in general. I listen to a lot of podcasts. We have indeed, yeah. And in fact, one of my jams previously was the Working Class Audio podcast. Yes, indeed. And of course, we've been featured on another podcast. We were featured on the uh, Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry as their gold badge winning Curio <laughs> of the Week. Yes, ab- the, the highest honour I have yet to attain. And if you listen to my mother, the highest I'll get. And... I have been on a bit of a mission to try and get onto another podcast, too. Oh, yeah? This is actually one of my favourite podcasts. Mm. It's called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I don't know it. It is a a group of scientists who one of their missions is to be sceptical about stuff, particularly to head off like pseudoscience and misinformation and and bad reporting. Mm. But also what they do in their episodes is that they introduce what's going on in the latest research and have a really quite rigorous discussion about, well, what it means, what we can actually infer from this stuff where a lot of outlets you know they'll take a story and they'll just run with the press release headline so it's sort of what we do but by people who actually know what they're talking about <laughs> they're gonna run us out of town Mike. yeah who's gonna want to listen to what we reckon <laughs> about neural networks if they have the option of listening to people who actually know what the words mean yes terrifying but the reason i've been trying to get onto their podcast is that first of all i really like it Secondly, at the end of the show, or near the end of the show, Mm. they have a slot called Who's That Noisy? And they play some sound. Right. It often has some kind of a technical source. Oh, okay. Um, They might play a sound that is, you know, the sound of one of the sections of some space rocket being detached. Okay. Or some kind of special machine getting up to speed, or, you know, then they talk about the way the sound was created. But first, they play it, one episode, and they get all their listeners to guess what it is for the next episode. 
And when I did my stereo toast foley with the contact mics, oh yes, I sent it through to Who's That Noisy, thinking that maybe I could get it on there under the hook of, well, this is how toast would sound in space. Yes. But sadly, they didn't bite. Aww. Either into the toast or into the idea. <laughs> Grave shame. <laughs> but yeah, so I, it's always in the back of my mind. If I hear a really kind of funky sound, then it would be great to try and get on Who's That Noisy. Anyway. I was listening the other day, and it got to the Who's That Noisy segment, and the guy prefaced the sound that he was about to play by saying, well, you know, it's a little bit creepy, and I have to warn you, this is a sonification rather than a real recording. Hmm. And so immediately, the word sonification (laughs) had all my senses on alert. Stirred something in you, yeah. And sure enough, that well-known audio that we have enjoyed so much in the past came out. Now, which could that possibly be? Uh, If you will recall... A Professor Marcus Bueller and his research into the sound of spiderwebs. Oh, no. <laughs> and I thought... No. I thought, oh, wow. Are the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe going to take on Marcus Bueller? So, obviously, I was a froth of excitement. As I am now. And immediately emailed through to what was that noise saying, well, I, there's no guessing here. I know exactly what this is. Yes, there you go. And please tell me you're going to give Marcus Bueller the sceptical treatment. Absolutely. What for? And so I was on tenterhooks for the next episode, and I had a lesson. <laughs> and not a sausage. They basically took it at face value. That is such a shame. And I couldn't believe it. I was so so disappointed that is such a shame because i would be prepared to hear that we were wrong because we're we're a couple of real dum-dums yes you know and they went through why while this might sound like irresponsible pseudoscience actually there's some real value and real real oh god so what do they actually do i mean they basically kind of just took it at face value and and just passed over it not very much time at all and then Mm. i think in the following episode they reported on another thing also from MIT. Okay. But this time from the MIT Media Lab. Okay. And it appears that the MIT Media Lab chartered a zero-gravity research flight. Mm-hmm. You know, one of those parabolic flight things that they use to generate weightlessness on Earth? I do, I do. To allow students to conduct experiments in microgravity. That sounds like fun. And, you know, there's all sorts of, like, strap lines and stuff saying, um, realising the mission statement of democratising access to space. <laughs> you know, imagine... Imagining and prototyping for humanity's future in space beyond the basic concerns of survival. You know, it's this idea of, you know, now that we're thinking about longer missions, we have to think beyond just, you know, how do we get people to survive? But, you know, what does human culture look like in space? (laughs) And so the thing that perked up my ears was this press release, presumably, that MIT Media Lab put out. Mm -hmm. One of the experiments was uh, researched by two people in the media lab, Nicole Louillier. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it kind of looks like a French spelling, but I don't think she's French. You gave it a good stab. And Sands Fish is the other guy. And Mr. Fish. Okay, you have my attention. And they created a, a new instrument called the Telemetron. Oh, immediately I'm worried, Mike, because you know how I feel about obfuscatory MIDI controllers that through some unintelligible process, I don't know, either just trigger MIDI or are basically modular synthesis nonsense. And that name... Well, I mean, let me give you the blurb. Hmm, okay, yeah. The telemetron takes advantage of the poetics of zero gravity. Okay. And opens a new field of musical creativity. This is all from the MIT site. Uh Uh-huh. The project attempts to expand expression beyond the limits of Earth-based instruments and performers, leveraging sensors, data transmission and capture for performance after flight, as well as their experience as composers and performers, Sands and Nicole. 
soul explore a new body language for music. Okay. Now, you can imagine what the kind of press releases were like for this. Yeah, I'm sure it got covered everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit sad. Digital Trends picked it up. Mm. It was like, we're no strangers to writing about weird otherworldly instruments here at Digital Trends, but a new Massachusetts Institute of Technology Media Lab project takes the otherworldly part of this equation quite literally with an instrument that is designed specifically for astronauts oh. to play in the oh. zero-gravity expanse of space. <laughs> Journalism is dead. Right? Uh, yes, Completely. My older brother has something that he tends to say, which is newspapers know all about everything until they start talking about something you have some experience of. At which point they sound like a six-year-old trying to convince you. (laughs) Okay, it's early in the morning. I haven't had a coffee. That's why I'm quite so grumpy. Carry on. Keep leading me down this path to the avatar. I will walk. So what might be the the opportunities of this instrument that might be specifically designed for zero gravity, like no air environment? So, from what you said and all this nonsense about body language and the experience, mm. I'm just imagining something that kind of floats and tumbles around. It's probably no clear external features. And then it remembers how it floats and tumbled around. And then it says, I don't know, this is how I float. And then you, you just change each of those motion sensing what's-its into an axis on a MIDI controller. And then it makes a funny noise. And you go, oh, the sound of space. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I think I'm assuming it's incredibly uninspiring and uninspired. And you know what's brilliant about this? Tell me. Is that you have just summed up the absolute entirety of this project. Oh, God, that's upsetting. Just off the top of your head. That's really upsetting. And for them, it seems to involve two top-of-their-field researchers, a whole bunch of MIT funding, right? some kind of zero-G charter plane, which can't have been cheap. Let me show you a video of this thing in action. I'll show you it, and then you, you describe. You describe to the listeners okay. what it is you see. Okay. And I think it also has a soundtrack showing the sound, supposedly, that's coming out of this thing. But, of course, it is all just MIDI data this thing's generating, <laughs> and they're just sending it to weird, spacey sounds. Yeah, I was going to say to a spacey virtual instrument, which I can equally play. They didn't send it to a GM brass module. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fun. Oh, Mike, if we could get a leaked copy of the MIDI data Ooh. and just put it through general MIDI brass. Actually, I'm going to be in Boston in a few weeks' time. Okay. I wonder whether maybe I could walk in there and somehow blag the MIDI data. <laughs> Can someone please slip Mike a USB drive <laughs> of this MIDI data so we can show you what space also as much as this sounds like? Yes. Okay, here we go. I'm playing the video. Opera of the future. Go to hell. Okay, it's, a, it's like a dodecahedron or something. Well spotted. Is it actually? Dodecahedron it is. <laughs> That's pure luck. Made of clear perspex with like two little tubes in it. And they kind of bounce around and it looks very zero gravity. All the movements trigger different musical notes and sounds. And the sound is, is a cat walking over a MIDI keyboard. <laughs> literally took the same MIDI data and put it into Marcus Bueller's sounds, you could say, oh, well, this is the spiderweb. Yeah. So I can't see any link between what they are doing or what's happening inside the instrument to the sounds that are coming out. I don't know if this is synced. Oh, I think if you look closely, I think these kind of little tubular things inside, I think there's two or three of them. Mm. They call them chimes. Of course, they don't make any noise at all. They're just got some electronics and gyroscope in them. They just go thunk. But when they collide or they hit the wall of the dodecahedron perspex thing, mm. it looks like there's a change in the sound there. So I think there is some link between the motions and the, the sounds we're getting. I agree, you're right. And if I look for those, I can see them. But I think if I moved the audio two seconds out of sync with the video, we would still be able to see that. Because there's always stuff happening. Yes, like, yes. Like, I, I would see as much logic 
in that. I don't doubt that this music that I'm hearing was generated by this piece of kit. That's not the lie they're telling. Yeah. You know, it's the idea that this is an instrument in any interesting sense of the word. Oh, like it's so frustrating. There's so much you could do. There's so much. I'm so glad that this is soon after the glissatar so that we can bear in mind that there are novel instruments actually being created. You're right to talk about the lie of it because there are so many layers of implicit untruth here. Yeah. I mean, just things like calling those little gyroscopic thing chimes. There's nothing chime about it. That's calling a bunch of electronics around a gyroscope a chime. It's a bit like me saying, well, my computer mouse is a... Tyne is a string. Yeah. There's nothing really that connects it at all. My computer mouse, I can use to click notes in my sequencer. So why shouldn't it be a piano? I could call it a key now. I'm not going to call it a mouse anymore. It's going to be a key. Honestly, even I, if you had told me that there were chimes inside a dodecahedron, then I'm more interested than I am in this instrument. Because that's an interesting idea. How do kind of physical percussion things interact? Now, that's not a more interesting idea than what happens if I shake my box of percussion toys. <laughs> No, it's still pretty dull as an idea, but it is, it's better than what they came out with. There was a quote from the MIT site which just says, The performers play the instrument by moving it in space, shaking it, colliding it. It's like, well, actually, I mean, is there any other instrument you would play where you would accept that paucity of control? <laughs> it's like going on stage and playing a concerto with wind chimes. <laughs> okay, wait, I know you're being sarcastic, but... Can you imagine someone hanging up four large sets of wind chimes and then pulling from behind them two handheld fans? <laughs> because that, again, a thousand times more interesting than what nonsense these people are up to. Yes, and probably more control in some respects. Compl- more control and then, you know, you see when they get what they want and when they don't quite. I think, and God, if I had more time and less responsibilities, I might well give a month to trying to learn the wind chimes. <laughs> As played by by a by a single yes. small fan. Yeah. Like that's an idea and that could be an instrument. Rather than the ludicrously overfunded space shaker that they seem to have come up with. Oh my word. It's just ridiculous. I would believe it so much more if those two not gonna call them chimes, random little boxes, were distinguishable from each other. Yeah. Because then maybe there is something about what one does versus what the other one does. But they're they're not. They're as indistinguishable as two peas in a shaker. Well, I mean, that's what gives the lie to this quote from their website. Mm. This experiment opens the doors for new forms of creating expression and brings the magic of space to musicians. No, it doesn't. We hope to reach beyond the utilitarian towards the inspiring. There is nothing inspiring about this thing. Oh. It's no more inspiring than picking up a shaker. It's depressing. And there's another lie too. This lie that, again, I can't believe all these media outlets, including SGU, have swallowed. Yeah. Which is, the instrument can be played inside spacecraft or in the vacuum of space without the benefit of sound waves. Oh. Well, no, actually it can't. It's a bunch of electronics transmitting wireless MIDI data to a receiver. You could take any acoustic instrument that generates vibrations with a pickup and a wireless receiver <laughs> and send that to your computer and it will be more a musical instrument than this. You could play an electric guitar in space. It doesn't need gravity. Yep. It doesn't need air. Yep. It doesn't need any of that nonsense. 100%. So it's an outright lie to say that this makes this instrument anyway special. I don't care whether it was designed to be used in space. I could say I designed an electric guitar to be used in space because it doesn't need to create acoustic sound. Yeah. Maybe this is just sour grapes that I feel that my toast could have been recorded in space. (laughs) I designed an instrument to be used in space before they did. My space toast. And it's better. (laughs) And it's more interesting. And it's more of an instrument. I've got more control over it. Yeah. And it's stereo. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think we need that raw MIDI data. To be honest, I think this might only be an email away. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. We could pretend we're a similar research organisation. <laughs> we could say, yes, we're trying to um, work out ways of generating MIDI data in the absence of microprocessors. <laughs> <laughs> Creating analogue MIDI. Yes. It's, it's a similar level of mendacity. If you do a bit of digging, there's another absolutely great video of Nicole Duilier doing a kind of an academic panel where she's presenting this project. Mm. And amazingly, I think only about 350 people have watched it on YouTube. But it is A1 24-carat the whole way through. I mean, there's all sorts of just amazing things she comes out with. Things like... Her work seeks to explore sound as a construction material, not only for architecture or spaces, but also for creating agency and identity. It's like totally meaningless. Yeah. Another one was um, the work of the Opera for the Future work group is art as a tool for change, for projecting futures, for fostering engagement and for opening new narratives. It's like, well, how does that differentiate it from any other artistic project ever made? Yeah. Oh. Oh, and here's, here's another one. Um... I love also to understand that beyond creating culture and expression in outer space, we become matter. Oh, go away. And we enter in another dimension where humans and matter need to relate in a more transversal and intimate way. <laughs> the telemetron was a dance between human and non-human bodies. Uh... What, in the same way that it's a dance between me and my mouse? <laughs> or me and my shoelace? Yeah. Oh, for heaven's sake. It's, it's this idea of what is an instrument and what, what is music, which are both kind of these lovely, open, unanswerable questions, which is to say there's fuzzy edges, but then it's been, it's been quite refreshing to find things which just aren't. Yes. <laughs> Definitely aren't. <laughs> Absolutely certainly aren't. Yes. So it's this sort of negative proof. And it's just so galling that so much money is being spent on this yeah. stuff. Look at that video that I just sent you and look at the look mm. on the researchers' faces. Mm. I mean, they just look like they can't believe they're getting away with this <laughs> They're basically playing keepy-uppy in zero-G with this octagonal thing. It's like, how the hell, from speaking absolute tosh about music that doesn't exist, have I ended up on a zero-G space flight? I know, I This know. is just so fun. This is so cool. Check me out. To quote the um, Digital Trends... Uh, site. Um, according to Sands, the pair has learned a lot during their initial tests and are now excited to play with other possible shapes and ways of interacting and performing in zero G. Well, no sh**. <laughs> you know, I'd like to go every weekend to the indoor skydiving centre. <laughs> you know, it's the same. It's an understandable <laughs> desire as they go. And that makes it even more galling. Yeah, it just looks like they're taking the and getting paid for it. It's so horrible. I mean, maybe we can just design our own exciting new instruments in the form of these. Just say, like, it's a phone book put through an FM synthesizer. <laughs> oh, how did you how did you change the... No, 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 you misunderstand. We took a physical phone book and we shoved it inside <laughs> an FM synthesizer. And in this way, we're communicating to everyone in Greater London because that's where their numbers are. We feel that, that it is wrong to be apologising for the... Uh, opaqueness of, of modern technology and that um, part of our sensory modality here is to take the um, <laughs> take the uh, telephonic token and make an immersive experience out of the... <laughs> oh, oh dear. Know, oh dear. It doesn't take much. You know in like classic hero stories <laughs> when there's a moment where you see a flash of darkness from the protagonist
antagonist and realise they are not so far from the thing they seek to destroy. <laughs> Mike, that was upsettingly good what you did just there. That was. <laughs> if you're not careful, you'll turn up there to criticise them and they'll hire you. It's like, thank heavens Sherlock Holmes was a goody kind of thing. <laughs> yes, exactly that vibe. Now, oh. I think maybe I do need to actually put out some emails and try and contact the people. Oh my word, yes. And say that we love the sound and we wonder what patch they used. If we could find out what instrument it was that they chucked it through. Because I don't know, maybe these two are like committed electronic music composers, but if I had to guess, I would say that it is on the default preset <laughs> of an instrument. Yeah, Omnisphere or something. Yeah, there you go. Probably if it's research, it's something like Max MSP or something, isn't it? Ah, uh, sounds like that would take too much effort. They just probably borrowed a Max MSP patch from someone next door in the lab. You know, that sounds very possible to me. And just, yeah, because if we got that, then we could... <laughs> You know, we could make free space music forever. I could throw hard-boiled eggs at a MIDI keyboard with the same pedal held down, and we could see how much like space that sounds. I mean, again, I, I, can, I can write you the research proposal. <laughs> this is a sonic exploration of the difference between zero gravity and gravitational music. Whoa. <laughs> okay. And then we'd have the choice either to show how very, very similar they sounded, <laughs> or just to use like a staccato tuba sound on ours and be like, gosh, it's it's much more grounded. Yes. Actually, when you when you do music in yes. in full earth gravity. <laughs> or just turn down the release time on some of their wispy pads and they would come out as all staccato stuff. Yes, they Oh, they've done it again. Another department of MIT has done it again. Yeah. And it's got them a huge amount of positive media coverage. I mean, to be fair, I haven't investigated whether there's any negative media coverage. I did. I, I, what I've done, I've just I've chucked into Google, Telematron, Instrument, Criticism, Critique, Fake, a couple others I could think of. And, and there's, there's literally nothing. As far as I can tell from this very preliminary what's it, there is no one online who's been critical. <laughs> and I just typed in Telematron Instrument bullshit. <laughs> and DuckDuckGo's results listing starts off with the words Not many results contain bullshit That's upsetting Now the thing about the whole lockdown period is in a sense, our worlds have shrunk. Yeah. We've ended up doing a lot more at home. Just the scale of work somehow feels like it's got smaller because it, it, we're in more confined spaces and sessions seem to be smaller in a way because you can't have 15 people in a room in the same way. Or you, no. it's, it's getting a little bit better now, but um, you haven't for a long time. And so this facepalm has that aspect of smallness to it, but it's... <laughs> so well concentrated. Yeah. A, a, a boutique facepalm. It's an acute facepalm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, the, the, the smaller the area of impact, the harder it's felt. So I... Yes. I can only imagine. And that's a very fitting description of the situation. Now... Actually, in a previous jam, quite an early episode of PSTV, seeing as we're in the 50th episode and thinking retro retrospectively, mm. I was talking about how one of the things I liked a lot about recording sessions and the kind of recording sessions I do, kind of location sessions, is this slightly Heath Robinson fort building kind of thing that you end up <laughs> doing, you know, rigging duvets up and building booths and all sorts of stuff. Stacking things on what's yes. And that same mentality also applies to my own mix room that I have in my basement at home. Okay. Because that's all home built mm. but because this is very much a multi-purpose room you know i podcast in it i write in it i mix in it i also record in it from time to time mm -hmm. it means that it needs to have a certain amount of modularity and reconfigurability about it rejigability exactly okay and one of the keys to this is hooks <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> tell me, tell me more. I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. Now reel me in. <laughs> well, um, basically cup hooks. I have screwed in all over the place. I have them in the ceiling. I have them all sorts of places. Okay. Because it enables me to rig up duvets and things in various different configurations around the room, depending on what I'm doing. Huh. So when I'm podcasting, my duvet is suspended behind me mm-hmm. when I'm sitting down at the desk. If I'm doing a vocal overdub, then I might have a V-shaped duvet booth in one edge. And so I'll have hooks for that. Oh, right. Or if I'm doing a, a video demonstration shoot thing and I need to hang a backdrop, then I'll hang a backdrop there and they'll have hooks for that. Mm-hmm. Or um, to stop noise coming from the little corridor beside my setup where I have my computers, mm-hmm. I have another little set of hooks that I can hang a duvet over that to stop the noise coming around the corner. And this month's face palm is all about a saga with one of those hooks. <laughs> and just one of them. I was going to say, just I, I assume that this would be about the vast network of hooks that you have oh, no. surrounding you. No, this is a single hook. For the most part, the story of these hooks is a story of shining success and multi-purpose <laughs> wonderfulness. Oh dear, this is starting to feel like a press conference, Mike. It's always <laughs> worrying when someone talks about their proud history that is almost clear of mistakes. <laughs> yes, indeed, almost. Almost. But there's one hook that is quite close to the entrance door to the room. Okay. And the duvet that I sling across to try and prevent noise coming from the computers round into my workspace mm-hmm. is close enough to the door that if I hang a duvet there, when you open the door, it, the door hits the duvet. Mm. So you have to kind of open the door and slide in and then work your way around the duvet. It kind of gets <laughs> yes. in the way. Squeezing towards your seat in a, in a packed cinema sort of vibes. Yeah. Now, of course, the best way to deal with that would be every time I come in and out of the room to just grab the duvet, pull it off the hook and hang it on a different hook, just that corner that's getting in the way. You make it sound so easy. I'm, I'm yeah. sure the process I mean, because is... the thing is my, with my duvets, you know those things that you, the, the key rings, the little spiral key rings that you can easily put keys on and off of? Yeah. I have those in the corners of all my acoustic duvets. Yeah. So they're easy to hang up. Oh... That's so good. I was going to say, you're just like piercing the fabric each time. But no, you've got these little rings. But this one little key ring on one corner of the duvet, every time I go in out of the door, if I were going to do it properly, I would take it off its hook because I was walking in and then put it back on its hook. Mm. But you know, real life... You can't be asked to keep unhooking and rehooking this thing every time you go in and out of the door. No one's got that sort of time, and anyone who claims to is, is lying. And so, over time, I've stressed this connection Ooh. to the point where finally, the other day, it parted company with the duvet itself. A sad event, but surely one that could cause no real mischief. I mean, it was a bit of a pain because, of course, it had broken the kind of fabric seam, which is the thing that the keyring went through. Right. And so it wasn't easy to rethread the keyring. Right. Because there wasn't anything strong enough to hold it. So I thought, okay, I can see I'm not going to keep rehooking this thing. I need to make especially more heavy duty fixing for that corner mm. to make it so that when I inevitably go past it and stress it, it, it holds up better because this clearly wasn't up to the challenge. Mm. So I actually found a climber's carabiner while out on a walk one day. Oh, lovely. Okay. Then I, I made a knot with the corner of the duvet and put it through the carabiner and then tied it with a cable wrap. So it's, yeah, there's nothing going to take this thing off the edge of this duvet. No, you could hang off it from the top of a cliff and be just fine. Beautiful. Perfect. Nothing is going to kill that carabiner. <laughs> and you see, this is the great thing about face palms, is that often what they come from <laughs> is this hubris, it's this pride, it's this feeling that I've really solved the hell out of this problem. <laughs> There's something very, very before the fool-ish about this pride. Yes. Now, the thing about the little keyring things that I put on all the other fixing points of my duvet, mm. the thing that I had not until this point appreciated was one of their most endearing qualities. Mm is that they're very light. 
Uh-huh. So on those occasions where I'm flipping these rings on and off of different hooks around my room, if just accidentally one of them happens to flop off the hook and bash me in the middle of the forehead. Oh, <laughs> oh my word, Mike. Right, yes, it's no trouble at all because it's a very light key ring. It causes no lasting damage. Mm. What a nice piece of information, which I'm sure will never come back to bite or indeed whack you in the face. And how my pride suddenly turned to... Uh, <laughs> to vanquish shame when I managed to get myself plumb between the eyes with this carabiner the other day. Oh, oh my word. <laughs> and as you said before, you know, that acute pressure is so much more than that. That sounds it. monstrous. And I mean, I'm a tall guy, so I have a long history of knocking my head on door frames and things. But there's a special agony about <laughs> the edge of a carabiner <laughs> catching you in the middle of the forehead. Small area high force. Yes. So I, I need I need to ask, who was around <laughs> when this happened? <laughs> I think mercifully no one. No, okay. And actually, I think I did it as I was about to go out of my room. So both of the doors of my room were closed. So I think, thankfully, no one else was treated to the stream of invective that then <laughs> spewed forth. Oh, my word. I can almost feel that impact myself, the cold metal completely out of nowhere that you're completely unprepared for. And it's that awful thing of feeling so proud of myself for having over-engineered this thing to death. Mm. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. only after the fact then being awakened to its potential lethality (laughs) (laughs) oh so how does it stand now it is still in place oh mike that's that's bravery bordering on hubris but now i have that kind of respect for it it's the same way that you know the first time you use a microphone stand and you undo the vertical shaft fixing mm. and it slides down and pinches your finger between the top boom arm and the rest of the shaft body yep. and yep. creates a massive blood blister right on the yep. joint of your finger. I know it well. I mean, everyone who's ever used a mic stand must have pinched their hand in it one way or other. Mm-hmm. And they're heavy, robust things for a reason. Yes. And you just remember, ah, oh, yes, yeah, I've got to remember not to pinch my hand in these things or wear gloves or do something. And so I mean... I just now- I've had this extra respect for this one corner of the duvet <laughs> that every time I pull it down, I don't do it in the same way by just like dragging the duvet and flipping the ring off the edge as I did before. And now grab <laughs> hold of the carabiner in my hand, look it dead in the eye and say, are you feeling lucky, punk, kind of thing. <laughs> and think to yourself, look, so long as I keep hold of this, yes. so long as I don't then actually hit myself in the face <laughs> with my hand, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, I take your point and I have definitely got that blood blood in the past I couldn't say with absolute confidence that I've definitely only got it once after which I definitely never got it again oh no and the same with me right and that's what concerns me about this approach that you've taken (laughs) well I mean the thing the thing about it is that I have now changed my processes to adapt to it because like you say I have not only had one blood blister from a microphone stand. Mm. And that is why now on recording sessions, I always wear gloves. Oh, really? Yeah. What a good idea. The other thing about wearing gloves, I mean, I I have those lightweight ones that have a rubberized palm and rubberized fingers. Mm. And it has multiple advantages. The first advantage is that you don't tweeze your fingers the whole time. Lovely. The second advantage, though, is that if you're doing a big session, and I'm doing sessions with like 30 odd stands. Mm. And if you go round and you actually undo the fixings when moving the stand in order to protect the stand Mm. and don't just like move things around against the clutch. Mm. Every time you turn one of those little knurled bolts 
it slowly sandpapers your finger joint. Huh. And so your hands can get actually really sore. Oh, interesting. You can get kind of blisters on your hands just from doing that many stands. From doing that all day long. Particularly if you're trying to do them tight enough that they don't move in the middle of a take. Right, yeah, I can imagine that. And as an ancillary advantage, the gloves, because they've got these rubberized fingers, mm. actually allow you to tighten the things tighter than you normally would be able to. Right, because you've got better grip than you'd be comfortable using on your own and only skin. And <laughs> Actually, sometimes I've gone into someone else's studio and I've been setting up their mic stands mm. and then they try and undo my mic stands and can't do it. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I have to go and loosen them all before I leave. Because they are using their weak human fingers. <laughs> <laughs> now, normally, at this point in the show, it would be time for... Some beautiful foley of toast being spread mm. with butter in eager anticipation of the first class jam to come. I mean, that's what we've done for the last 49 episodes. Indeed. Seems to have seem worked all right. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm afraid the stress of having to do two episodes so close one after another, I'm just too hungry. I'm just going to have to go straight ahead and eat it as it is. Okay. That, okay, so what I've just heard is someone <laughs> quite ravenously, you know, someone enjoying yeah. their toast. This isn't prim nibbling. No. This is someone who's waited a while, who's kind of stood eagerly by the toaster. Yes. Watching those little red wires glow on their soon-to-be snack. Yeah. Until right at the end, well, you get this sort of, <laughs> what I can only describe as a resonant filter sweep heading downward. And you get a kind of very deep... Well, it's almost like the sheer hunger that kicked off the beginning of the toast eating is slowly satisfied and it gets more enjoyable as the eating process continues. Or possibly like you dipped one corner of your toast in dark matter by accident. <laughs> And then it's, uh, then it's upon kind of reaching that bit of it. Warping space-time. But suddenly, a well-enjoyed slice of toast, surely. I, and I can only assume this was from you just eating a slice of toast, innocently <laughs> and honestly, Mike. No, this actually comes from one of my own little... Um, do you have these favourite things that you have, that are small things that you have to have that small thing in your life? Uh, or like, I mean, do you have, for example, um, a favourite type of mug or a favourite type of tissue or a favourite type of battery? Or I, I don't know about type. I have my favourite mug. Okay. And I absolutely have a favourite spoon. Oh, there we go. For eating cereal. It just works best for me. Is there a favourite brand of something that you have to have? I mean, can you only have like the original brand licorice all sorts, for example? <laughs> now, I have tried too many times off-brand Pringles. Right. And so I will only accept... Pringle Pringles. Okay. I, I have no idea what their company ethics are like, but they do just make the best Pringles. There's, there's sort of no denying for me. Those are the ones that you can't stop with once you pop. Having had popped them, mm. stopping is just no longer a viable option for me. And for me, one of these absolute brand loyalties that I've had now for years is to a certain type of disposable propelling pencil. Mechanical propelling pencil. All right. It is the Papermate Sharp Writer. <laughs> well, it's got a pretty cool name. I, I like the fact that it's Propelling pencil, I don't need to keep sharpening it, of course, and get sharpenings all over the place. Okay. But it's one that isn't one that you pump the end like a little button. Mm -hmm. At the lead end, you twist it to regulate the amount of lead that comes out. Okay. So you can decide exactly how much lead comes out the end. Oh, okay. No, I think I know these. Right, rather than just having to have a single pump, and then if you want to get less than that, to kind of push it back in awkwardly. Yeah. 
And they have a little eraser on the end as well. So it's a one-stop bit of propelling pencil perfection. (laughs) (laughs) If one were looking to coin a phrase. Yeah. And I use pencils a lot. All my notes tend to be scrappy bits of paper with pencil markings on them. I do work on manuscript paper as well. And this is all with this pencil. I just love this pencil. So I kind of buy them in bulk. Mm. But at the best of times, a plastic disposable propelling pencil is not the most environmentally friendly thing. Well, no. No, that seems fair. It's great that I can scatter them all over the house and never be more than two metres from a propelling pencil. (laughs) (laughs) I have the same approach with plectrums, yes. There you go. But there is one aspect of the design that is problematic for me. Okay. And that is, and this might say something about the quality of my thoughts as transcribed by said pencil, <laughs> okay. that the eraser tends to get used up before the lead does. And so I find myself in the situation where after a while I have like a half a dozen pencils around the place that I don't really want to use because they don't have an eraser left on them. Well, this makes sense. And you realise that imperfection is part of life. (laughs) But finally, I decided this is super anal, but I do need to try and find a source of replacement erasers. Oh, goodness me. To try and take the old eraser out and put a new one in. And I couldn't find anyone selling that diameter of pencil eraser. When you fell down this rabbit hole, Mike, was there some important work you were meant to be doing? Because I know for myself, (laughs) this is exactly the sort of thing that would be urgent and important when I was late on my tax returns or something well of course there was (laughs) why do you need to even ask that question Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in the end this is how far down the rabbit hole i got in the end i worked out the only place i could get seven millimeter diameter (laughs) eraser was to get those ones that are actually shaped like a pencil okay you know the really thick pencils rather than sharpening them they have a paper outside bit that you peel off. Oh, and you sort of peel it off as you go. Yeah. Those have always intimidated and confused me. And so my toast folie was me unwrapping a bit of this eraser. Really? <laughs> and the filter sweepy <laughs> thing that you hear is the fact that the little scrap of paper that I'm pulling off is getting longer. Okay, and that's why it gets deeper in pitch. Yes. Oh, I was quite sure that that was something, you know, Fourier transformed and synthesised. It is entirely analogue. That's pretty darn cool as it goes. It beats the hell out of the telemetron, I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> So, now that I've eaten the toast, assuming that the toast hadn't been eaten, Mm -hmm. what jam are you going to place on said toast? Well, retrospectively. I'm very excited for this jam. And unusually for us, or for me at least, Mm. before we talk about this one, before I even introduce this one, I would like you to hear it. Okay. Okay, right. In which case, La Puerca. By Serenata Guayanesa. Okay, right. Let's have a listen. Welcome back. Yeah. Now, you see, I was a bit, not exactly forewarned, but we have form now, you see, between the two of us of finding bits of music to play each other. Mm -hmm. The moment it popped up on Spotify, I thought, oh, that looks kind of broadly South American. Mm -hmm. I think there might be some tricksy rhythms going on here. So I was immediately (laughs) primed and lazy guided to try and be able to make sense of this thing, to say something sensible about it. And thankfully, it wasn't as kind of impenetrable as um, (laughs) Cucuruco Paloma, the other one that we did the other day. Day. And so it seems to me like it's broadly like a 5-4 thing going on. Absolutely. And that's as deep as I've gone. It's a piece in 5-4. And I was so chuffed with myself because like after about 30 seconds, I was like, oh, 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 I found it. I found it. <laughs> and then I was locked in. and I was like, OK, yeah, now I can kind of tap my foot to it and kind of get to feel that like I'm going along with the music rather than the music's kind of... You know how sometimes <laughs> you get that feeling, you know, if you go into the sea and the waves are quite strong and sometimes you just get completely taken by the wave and, and you're powerless. Yes. And when you don't get the rhythm of something yet... 
you're just unable to parse it, and it's just like turbulence somehow. <laughs> it is. It's just chaos everywhere. So I was so pleased that I managed to lock onto it, and then it was like, oh, okay, now I can kind of concentrate on the music a bit more somehow. So this song, just for, for a little context before we dive in, it's called La Puerca, the, the Sao, and it's a traditional Venezuelan folk song. And I was so happy that I got to do this the episode after your Bella Fleck number. Oh, yes. Because there is, for me... While Bella Fleck and co are so incredibly, playfully, joyfully tight. Yes. What stands out to me about this and has in the, I don't know, seven years that I've known about this song and just revisited it again and again and again, Mm. is how playfully, joyfully, skillfully sloppy it is. Yes. Like, yes. Everything is melody and counter melody and rhythm and cross rhythm. Yes. In 5-4. And I don't like 5-4, Mike. <laughs> All right. I don't. It's a clever-ass time signature for me. It, it's yes. so rare that it actually feels groovy or anything. It's just something to do to your music if you want to feel smarter than your listeners. Yeah. And so to hear four singers yeah. just play, yeah. just goof off together in 5-4 yeah. and start their phrases in the weirdest moment. Yes. As you say, the clave, the bass rhythm is nothing super strange. So long as you start counting at the right sort of time, you can really easily find that five. Yeah. But within that, they are just flapping around. Yeah. Even the bass player like occasionally just starts playing off beats or or is a little bit out of time or rushes a little bit compared to the guitars or and, <laughs> and so I, I wonder as I was going through, and if I listened again, I'd probably kind of be wanting to check this, whether they put an extra beat in occasionally. Yeah. But I suspect that they didn't. It's just the fact that they're playing loosely with the timing. They are. I've listened to this many times and I have never noticed, you know, a beat dropped or a beat added. Yeah. It is just not metronomic yeah. at all. It's so loose. And to be able to be loose and in five mm. is just nothing I've heard before. Like, like you can't play take five with a lazy feel. The whole point of it is to kind of drive. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that example. But even yeah. the couple of kind of slightly more folkloric English things that are in five, these are dance numbers and you you concentrate yeah. and you hit fives. And I mean, even like some kind of modern songs that are in five, things like um, Golden Brown has a section in five or... Or uh, Sting's Seven Days as a section in five, weirdly, <laughs> given the title. Um, <laughs> those ones, they're all things that feel rhythmic and they feel they have to be rhythmic to make sense somehow. Mm-hmm. But it's the looseness of it that's wonderful. It's got the kind of feel of Swing Low Sweet Chariot. Okay. And kind of sung at a rugby stadium <laughs> or sung in a pub after your team has just won. Yeah. You know, that by really excellent singers yeah. who just happen to be doing it in five. It's such a joyful song and it's somewhere I go to remind myself that I don't know the first thing about anything because I know that 5-4 has to be strict and I know that yes. that it sounds a bit academic when you do it. Yeah. It's a nonsense song. It's broadly about an old woman who keeps a pig under her bed and the pig <laughs> snores so loudly that it upsets the old woman. Boom. <laughs> That's the sort of narrative art. A fittingly madcap lyric, yeah. Yes, it fits the mood. I also love the singing style here. Mm. Broadly, it's like men harmonising. Mm. And yet it somehow steers clear of any kind of association with barbershop or acapella or any of that kind of... Mm-hmm. Or boy bands or anything, that kind of thing. You get the impression that it's a bunch of 
of dads getting together. <laughs> yes. And just kind of grumbling along, but having some skills with it, rather than a vocal group who've been rehearsing or whatever. They're all just kind of chiming in and going, yeah, let's do this. And, and interrupting each other. And, yeah. yeah. And it's lots of low voices as well. Because a lot of the time with harmonies, they take higher harmonies because the rest of the arrangement is filling in the texture. It's sort of taken. But they're, they're singing lots of low, kind of rich... We're all proper meat-eating guys, kind of. <laughs> There's nothing approaching falsetto, is there? I hadn't even thought about that. I think there are some higher notes. Da-da-da-da-da is as high as I can think. You never kind of really float up high. But there's some good, rich, close harmonies lower down in the register that's quite nice. It is. It's four male voices in harmony, but it just doesn't feel like harmony to me. It feels like polyphony. Yes, absolutely. The parts are so independent yeah. and have the feeling of being kind of semi-improvised. You know, it's like they say with jazz, it's like a conversation. It feels like a conversation a bit. Yeah. It seems like the lead is being shared out between the different people as well. Oh, completely. Yeah. And and like we said with Bella, this is another reason I'm, I'm glad to kind of follow this immediately with, with that. The Bella Fleck tune had these kind of cool time changes, inventive chord changes and solos that went around the key and around the time and yet it was so clearly not jazz yes and here we've got something which is four male voices accompanied by strummed chordophones and a bass yeah being like conversational improvisatory and and gorgeous and it's so clearly not barbershop yeah or really any other vocally led genre the closest reference that i come to when i think about this is the beach boys wow yes i get where you're coming from <laughs> right? while not sounding anything like them i feel like there's a distance cousin relationship there yeah because this idea of you know i'll just start the tune at a different point from where you started the tune and we'll see what happens <laughs> i love the fact that it just feels so kind of sellotaped together it feels like <laughs> oh they just met up and this just happened to be them all sitting around drinking and they picked up their instruments and off they went i used to live in indonesia and the moped is used as a pickup truck yes which is to say you'll see something piled meters high with bags and maybe live chickens and all sorts of things. And you will know, because you have lived in the world and you have a rudimentary understanding of physics, that any second it's all going to come tumbling down. Because nothing is secured in the way that it should be. And yet, <laughs> and yet, it weaves with the grace of a, of a ballet dancer, yes. the, you know, the speed of a fast thing, and <laughs> holds together just perfectly. Yes. And that's my experience of this. If I attempted anything like this, it would be pandemonium. It would crash and burn and be awful. Yeah. But somehow these four men just kind of dance right on the edge of chaos. Yeah. And never even dip a toe in. No, it's interesting because a lot of music is designed to give the impression of a bunch of people having a good time, a kind of a party atmosphere. Mm. And so often it fails because it feels like it's too structured and too forced. Yes, absolutely. And it seems like that's where this really succeeds, is it feels like a bunch of people having a good time and they're having such a good time that they're not paying as much attention as they might do to the fact whether they're actually <laughs> in time or whether they're singing together. or. Yeah. But that's the endearing quality of it. That's extremely well said. They're not trying too hard. I myself have tried to give recordings the idea of just like a funnel jam session and it's really hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Yes. Because, you know, it'll either sound clinical or somehow clinical and poorly put together. <laughs> or like you've just found like a recording of a crowd having a generally good time and slapped it on top of a studio record. Yeah. It's not it's not easy. But here, yeah, no, there's a real, real joy to the music. But you just slipped in a moment ago. I'm not gonna let this one go by. You slipped in <laughs> 
you lived in Indonesia again. Oh, it's this another is story for This when you were working it. as a stunt parachute <laughs> diver, was that <laughs> No, 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 no. You're thinking of my shark taming days in Mozambique. Of course. Yeah, no, come on, Mike. Yeah. It's very straightforward. <laughs> Keep up. <laughs> There's a graph on my homepage, a sort of diagram. Is that career trajectory graph it looks like Jackson Pollock? <laughs> yes, there you go. A Jackson Pollock that's fallen on the floor is more or less how I describe the trajectory. So how long were you in Indonesia then? Four years, five years. Four years? Something like that, yeah. Where do you fit all this stuff in? Do you have like a kind of a telescopic timeline or something? (laughs) Which means, sad and tragic though it is, it's time again for us to say goodbye to you, our wonderful listeners. Indeed. And hope you get through the rest of this month until you get to hear our beautiful voices again. There's just time to thank our sponsor. So who is it, John, this month? Well, they're a bit nervous about bringing this out. Oh. But they're going to do their best. Okay. <laughs> and I've got, I've got here on the copy that they'd like you to appreciate the seed of a great idea. Yeah. This is surprisingly modest for advertising copy, even if in execution... It might sound a little bit lost and underwhelming. It's that minimum viable product concept. I think so. I think what refreshing frankness. <laughs> right. Do you want your tracks to really land with that sound of the summer? To have that particular sizzle, that crackling, that heat. Well, I mean, who wouldn't? Well, can I recommend to you the barbecue? <laughs> One, one more time. That is tremendous. That's the Barbie EQ. Oh, I mean, we, we should be able to run with this. The Barbie EQ. Um, so um, let me guess, this has uh, three uh, griddle plates. You've got the, the higher and the lower heat one. <laughs> and then the one in the middle that can then be determined exactly what temperature it, it is. You know, you can sear your steak on the, the high temperature griddle on the right hand side and then move it onto the central one. And then once you've cooked it, you can keep it warm on the hot plate, which is on the left hand side. And if the signal winds up getting too hot, then it will just kind of clip the fat off your steak. Oh, gosh, you were flying close to the sun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wonder what a graphic barbecue would look like. <laughs> See? Oh, that's a, I'm afraid this is a family podcast, Mike, and I'm not allowed to. Uh, <laughs> they've said specifically, please to not discuss their graphic Barbie EQ. Uh, they've actually, they've got into serious trouble with their graphic Barbie EQ, and it's now been refused for sale in several countries. It, it is their multi-band graphic oh, Barbie no! EQ. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh, that is superb. <laughs> Just turn it around at the end there. Also, you, there's obviously there's a valuable piece of kit that you keep in your garden and mm. they are aware that this comes with security risks yes. so um there is a there is a little islet on the side that you're welcome to put a bike lock through and take that onto your fence it does support side chaining you're on fire today mr Whitten. <laughs> thank you so very much i think we ought to quit while we're what some would loving and supportively call ahead if you listener would like some more of our trademark nonsense even since yesterday's recording session of last episode <laughs> i have posted a new extra two Patreon.com slash Project Studio Tea Break. Oh my word. It is our big story about uh, Lad Baby and Wham and the Christmas number one thing. I learnt a lot in that chunk. It turns out my Christmas music knowledge was severely lacking in the past. You learnt that George Michael had indeed passed away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
Who knew? <laughs> so please do go and check out our fantabulous Patreon extras. There are all sorts, and there are multiple levels upon which you can join. Mm. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash PSTB tweets and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash PSTB books. But what if they want to email us, Mike? You can email us your new zero-G gravity project proposals oh, to tbreak at projectstudiotbreak.com. Still angry about that. Gorgeous. Now, I know we did plugs yesterday, but since then, have you, have you come across anything to plug, Mike? No, no, still a plug-free zone around here. Okay, no, likewise. We're just that humble. We are going to once again know what... So last time we plugged you. Yes. Uh, and all the cool things you're getting up to. This time, shall we plug uh, the summer sun? <laughs> Go check out the summer sun if it's arrived by now. Yes. And see the cool things that's up to. Thanks so very much for dropping by. And ta pets. ta <laughs> 